Before I begin the sermon this morning, I wanted to lift up just a couple of more announcements to you. Uh, First of all, uh, I hope you had a chance to read uh, our church newsletter that we send out every other uh, week on email. If you're not receiving that and you would like to, just please let the church office know and we'll be happy to add you to that list. But um, in my article in last week's newsletter, I invited you to think about folks that you haven't seen returning to worship yet and to just make note of those people uh, and to begin praying for an opportunity to be made available to you to begin to reach out uh, to those people and let them know that we miss them, uh, that church is just not the same without them in the hopes that they might respond and to uh, return to church when, when they feel comfortable. Uh, for many, it's just kind of gotten out of the habit of doing that. And uh, as much as it might mean for someone, for the preacher to call you and say, I haven't seen you, I think it would mean even more if you have a relationship with someone and you just reach out to them and say, I've missed worshiping with you on Sunday mornings. Uh, and that leads me to the second thing that I'd like to say this morning. On July the 12th, we're going to take the blue tape away. And I know many of you have been chewing on me for a while about getting rid of the blue tape. And the real reason why we haven't gotten rid of the tape doesn't have much to do with COVID. It just has to do with the effect of COVID. And that's that our average worship attendance has been about half of what it was before the pandemic began. And I know you, if I took that blue tape up, you'd all sit on those last 10 rows and there'd be nobody sitting up front. So uh, I'm tired of y'all chewing on me about the blue tape, so we're going to take it up on July the 12th, but I have an ask for you. Please don't all congregate at the back of the worship space. Uh, It's a lot more enjoyable to preach to, and for a guest walking in, it looks a lot more appealing is if everybody's spread out all over the place instead of the first 20 rows being completely empty because nobody is sitting there. So heads up, be thinking about folks that you can invite that you haven't seen in a while, let them know you missed them, and then on July the 12th, the blue tape will come up, and so um, thank you for that. Uh, The sermon title today is The Power of Touch, and the uh, scripture lesson is that passage from uh, Mark chapter 5. Pat, if you would put this picture up for me. Uh, Does anybody know who, does anybody recognize anyone in that picture? Anybody? Who? Eli Manning. Now, for those of you who don't know who Eli Manning is, he's two-time Super Bowl winning, two-time Super Bowl MVP, Ole Miss Rebel for life, a member of the first family of Ole Miss football, a future Hall of Famer, and in 2019 at the LSU Ole Miss football game, I got to ride down the elevator with Eli Manning. Now, I'd like to tell you that the guy behind Eli is a member of his security detail. But that's my friend Wade. Wade has a little bit of a man crush on Eli Manning. I don't know if you can tell that from the picture. But the truth is, is that all of us who went to Ole Miss, who saw Eli play, all of us sort of have a little man crush on Eli Manning. 
But if you were to say to me, based on what I see in that picture, I think your friend Wade has gone a little bit too far in his man crush, I would not disagree, okay? Um, I wondered as we were on the elevator that night, and, and actually Eli's daughters were like stepping on his feet, and I'm like, don't touch those feet. Those are precious feet. We, I mean, we might get one more Super Bowl out of him if you just get off of his feet. But I wonder, where is his security detail? I mean, who are the people that are supposed to keep those creepy kind of man crush fans from like getting all up on him or something? Um, and I thought about that picture this week as I was reading this text, as I was preparing for this sermon, because I wondered, who was Jesus' security detail? I mean, who were the people that Jesus expected to kind of keep those folks that really wanted to get too close to Him from getting that close to Him? I mean, who were the people that when He was trying to get from point A to point B in an efficient, fast way that would kind of just like spread out the crowd, part the sea so that He could get through? Was it the disciples? I mean, were they supposed to be the ones to, to, to make that happen? I, I don't really know. The Scripture doesn't really say. Uh, but what we do know is that like Eli on that crowded elevator that night, Jesus had a tendency to draw a lot of people around him wherever he was. And so today in our scripture, even though he's not in an elevator, he's by the sea and there's all sorts of people around him. And you know that they're just all up in his personal space. You know that he probably can't even walk because of the huge crowd. And we know that there's at least one person that gets especially close to Jesus. And it's a man by the name of Jairus. And Jairus in our scripture lesson this morning, Mark, the, the one we believe that wrote this particular gospel account of Jesus' life, says that Jairus was a, a ruler of the synagogue. That he was like a... Um, well-established, very important and prominent person in the community. And apparently, nobody on Jesus' security detail stopped Jairus from coming up and throwing himself at the feet of Jesus. And it makes me wonder if that's because Jesus' secret Savior service uh, somehow recognized him as being an important person in the community and just kind of let him go through. Now, I'm really upset because nobody laughed at secret Savior service. And the reason why you should think that that is funny is because in Mark's Gospel, he says that Jesus didn't want anybody to know who He was. And so there's this theme through Mark's Gospel called the Messianic Secret. And so, you know, secret service protects the President, but this is the secret Savior service. And you're not laughing still, so I'm going to move on with the sermon. Uh, but anyway, they don't stop Jairus, Jairus from coming. And, and, and so... Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, it's, it's surprising to me that Jairus would even come to see Jesus in the first place. And there's like three different reasons why it surprises me that Jairus would come. And the first is because Jesus has already been in the synagogue in Mark's Gospel, and it hasn't exactly worked out well for him. I mean, he spent just a little bit of time in the synagogue, and already all of the religious leaders are looking for a way to destroy Jesus. So I find it interesting that just a few pages in 
Mark's gospel after the synagogue folks are already plotting for a way to kill Jesus that one of them would actually go and throw themselves down at the feet of Jesus. I find that interesting. Uh, the second thing that I find interesting is that this guy, this prominent leader of the community, this distinguished ruler of the synagogue would actually beg Jesus for something. Because uh, according to some of the other uh, resources that are available from this particular time, it wouldn't have been uncommon for people to come to a religious leader, a ruler of a synagogue, and beg them. And, 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 uh, and, and, but Jairus, having been used to people begging to him about something, finds himself begging at the feet of Jesus for something. And then the third thing that sort of surprises me about why would he go and beg is why he begged is because of why he begged and that's that his daughter is dying. His daughter is dying. Now I don't know about you but if I would like to think that if it was my child that was dying that I would want to stay with the child. And especially if I'm a respected religious leader, especially if I'm the ruler of the synagogue. I mean, don't you think this guy had a second in command? Somebody that was trustworthy and loyal and smart and witty and kind and generous like Jim Clardy? I mean, wouldn't he send somebody like that? To, to, to Jesus on his behalf and say, hey, would you please come? Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue's daughter, is dying and we would really like for you to help. Well, maybe he didn't invite somebody like a Jim Clardy to go because none of them would go. Maybe these synagogue buddies of his, the ones that had already began to plot and uh, hatch a plan to destroy Jesus, maybe they're already hard at work at it. Maybe they have no interest in trying to go and beg from someone that they're already intent on killing. So maybe none of his religious buddies would go. Uh, maybe even his family wouldn't go. You know, a little later in the story, we learn that his family says, hey, don't even bother this guy. I mean, your daughter is dead now, and there's absolutely nothing in the world that this guy, this teacher, this rabbi is going to be able to do. Uh, maybe everybody was so upset because Jesus is just beginning His earthly ministry, and yet He's already found a way to tick off all of the religious establishment. And so maybe Jairus is forced to go on his own because nobody else will go for him. And what's interesting is that Jairus does not go as a member of the religious establishment when he throws himself at Jesus' feet. I mean, certainly that's what he is. Certainly that's what he does. But Jairus is with Jesus today not because he is a respected religious leader in the community, but because he's a parent that loves his child. He is a parent that is absolutely devastated at the thought that his child might die. He is a parent that is desperate to find some way that his daughter might survive her illness. And he is also a guy that is aware of Jesus' reputation for healing. Because you know why the synagogue leaders got so upset at Jesus in the synagogue and began to threaten and plan a plot to kill him? Because he had the audacity to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. 
And so Jairus is there because he is devastated, because he's concerned about his child, and because he knows that Jesus has a reputation for healing. And so Jairus believes that there is power in the touch of Jesus. And he says, I believe that if Jesus would just come and lay hands on my daughter, that she would be made well. And so he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and he begs Jesus to come. Now Mark doesn't record Jesus responding in any kind of verbal way to Jairus' plea, to his begging. But we are told by Mark that Jesus immediately goes with Jairus. This is an act of compassion. It's an act of understanding. It's an act of acceptance. And if ever there was a time for the secret Savior police to get to work, it's right now. I mean, they should be parting the sea, making a way for Jesus to go to this prominent religious leader's home and to cure his daughter. Because there are all sorts of crazy people like my friend Wade pressing in on Jesus that would try to stop Jesus or delay Jesus or to get him off track. And wouldn't you know it, there's another such person in the story. Someone else who finds a way to get close to Jesus. It's an unnamed woman. She's unnamed because if you think women are still mistreated and undervalued today, you hadn't seen anything like the first century. This woman was unnamed. She was unimportant. She was unrecognized, probably. She was not influential. She was probably not respected. She was probably not from a great community. We are told that she was sick and that she had been sick for 12 years and that she had tried absolutely everything she could do to try to get better. Uh, she probably drank all these sorts of tonics and potions and she probably tried uh, some superstitious things. Josephus said that, that one of the things that a woman women that might have done uh, that to cure something like what this woman was experiencing is that they would walk around with the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen rag. I mean, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? But she was willing to try anything. I know when I was sick with cancer, this woman called me and said, if you'll let me rub orange peel on your feet, uh, that cancer will leave your body. And I was taking off my shoes. I mean, I didn't care. I was willing to try anything. And that's exactly what this woman was willing to do. In fact, the Scripture says that she had spent everything that she had going to every single kind of doctor or professional that she could find trying to get well, and she had not been able to. But there's something deeper going on than this woman just being sick. Not only was she sick, but the particular kind of illness that she had meant that she was ritually unclean. So not only has this woman been sick for 12 years, she's also likely been in isolation for 12 years because nobody wants to be around somebody that could potentially make you sick and potentially make you unclean. It's, she's sort of like been quarantined like so many of us were during the pandemic. She was not allowed to get around anybody else. She lived in complete alienation and isolation on the outskirts of town. And yet this woman believed in a similar way to Jairus in the power of touch. And she just somehow believed that if I could just get close enough to Jesus to touch the hem of his garment, then I would be made well. 
And so this woman is willing to break with several customs of the day in order to see if, in fact, Jesus might be able to heal her. She probably disguised herself because uh, people knew who all of the ritually unclean people were. And, and she, she probably had to disguise herself to, to even be able to approach Jesus. And certainly she had to put herself in a large crowd of people, risk getting them sick, risk making them unclean. And that would have infuriated everybody in those days. And so she was willing to do all of those things and she uh, steps forward and she touches Jesus. And when she touches the garment of Jesus, it says that instantly she experienced healing in her body. And I'm guessing that she was planning on just kind of walking away. And, and Jesus felt this power go out of his body. And so he looked around at the disciples and he said, who touched me? And they're like, who didn't touch you, Jesus? I mean, there's all sorts of people all around and, and he said, I'm not interested in everybody that touched me. I'm interested in the one person who touched me that caused the power to leave my body and the power to heal this woman. And Mark says that this woman stepped forward. She was scared to death. She flung herself at Jesus' feet. And she began to tell him the entire truth of her life. And instead of scolding her for threatening to make him ritually unclean, instead of scolding her for coming out of isolation and threatening to get everybody around her sick with a similar illness to the one that she had, Jesus called her daughter. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. We could pass over that word daughter really fast and lose the significance of what he's saying right there. But what he is essentially saying is that I not only heal you of your disease, but I have restored you from the broken relationships that you have had. Your husband may have divorced you. Your family may have separated themselves from you, afraid that they would become unclean as well. But now you are daughter. You're right relationships with others has been restored and then Jesus sends her away by saying shalom go in peace and the word shalom literally translated means completely restored back to wholeness it's a beautiful moment in the scripture except for the fact that while Jesus stopped to take care of this unnamed insignificant woman Jairus' daughter died. And the folks that come to tell them that says, Jesus, there's no reason for you to even bother going because she's dead. And Jesus said to Jairus, the faith that brought you to me in the first place, keep that same kind of faith and let's continue on toward your house. And there we're told that Jesus leans over and he grabs the girl's hand and he tells her to get up, touching her, and that she is raised from the dead. Well, the reason why this scripture lesson so resonated with me this week, I think, is because of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, some of us are married, some of us have lived with family, and we had opportunities to uh, give touch and to be touched by others. But through this pandemic, I heard story after story after story of people in our church that live alone, 
that had no one to touch. And there are people in our church family that for over a year never experienced the touch of another human being. And it just broke my heart. And, and in this story, one of the things that I think Jesus is highlighting is that there is something powerful, something magical, something wonderful about caring and appropriate touch. Uh, an appropriate touch is a way of accepting people. It's a way of acknowledging people. It's a way of celebrating community and love. It is so essential to our well-being. And, and there have been all sorts of studies done about people who have been deprived of human touch and, and the significant delays that people experience as a result of being deprived of human touch, especially young uh, children. So that was the main point of the sermon today, was just about this power of touch. And then it occurred to me that not every touch heals, does it? It occurred to me that there are those of us who long to be touched by someone, Jesus or someone else that we know, and that through that touch that we might find complete healing and restoration. But not every touch heals, does it? And I've known so many people throughout the course of my ministry that when they've prayed for that kind of a touch from Jesus... And they didn't get it. When God didn't act in the way that they wanted God to act, that they lost their faith. And they just turned around and they walked away from God. And let me just say that I've had those thoughts myself. I've had some of those same feelings myself. When, when God didn't move or act or work in a way that I wanted, that I expected, that I thought I needed, I've been tempted uh, at many times in my Christian walk, to just turn around and say, well, I don't want anything to do with this God that won't hear my prayer, that won't heal my pain, my suffering, my illness, my situation. That's a reality for a lot of people. And yet, as I started to think about it, as many people as I have known that have walked away from God when they didn't get the touch that they wanted, I've seen so many more people to grow closer to God and depend more on God when they didn't get the answer to the prayer that they wanted, when God didn't move in the way that they expected or needed. And so I got to thinking, what's the difference? I mean, how is it that one person who doesn't get the answer to their prayer, the healing that they desire, the touch that they want, walk away from God, while other people seem to walk even closer with God? And then I remembered a sermon that I heard several months ago, probably during the pandemic, when I was listening to a lot more podcasts, and and, and I heard a, a pastor say that, um, that there are three things that really sort of influence this kind of thing in our lives, whether we walk away from God or whether we walk closer to God. The first is what we believe. Uh, the second is who do we listen to? 
And the third is, how do we frame the situation where we find ourselves in? The first question is, uh, what do we believe? And if we believe that Jesus should heal everybody's illness every time somebody asks for healing, uh, then we are going to be sadly mistaken. I mean, Jesus himself at one point in the Gospel of John said, this, in this world there will be trouble. Uh, that that um, there's going to be bad things that happen. Even Jesus himself could not escape the suffering and the death of his crucifixion on the cross at Calvary. So if we believe that Jesus ought to just come and heal us and do everything that we want whenever we want it, we are going to be sadly disappointed. But if we believe that in the same way that God took the horrible pain and suffering of the cross and used it and made it redemptive and worked for good in people's lives, in that same way that God might be able to work in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our uh, questions uh, for good, then that will increase our faith. We've seen evidence of what God can do in awful situations for good. And the second question is, who will you listen to? When you don't get the answer to the prayer that you want, you've got two different groups of people you can listen to. You can go and listen to the people that have walked away from God, that says that God doesn't care, that God doesn't, can't be trusted, that God's absent or silent or not concerned. And those people are out there, and you could listen to them, and it will influence how you respond. But you can also find the people all around you that have experienced the pain and the discomfort and the suffering and the illness of other people, and somehow or another, because of what they believed about Jesus, that he can work for good even in this, and it has actually increased their faith and made them stronger in their relationship with God, and that too will help to give you a greater faith as you go through your circumstance. And the final question is, how do we frame it? How do we frame the situation that we're in when God hasn't acted in the way that we want? We can either say that God doesn't care, that God's absent, that God can't be trusted, that God is not concerned. Or we can say, God, help me to see, even in the midst of my pain and my suffering, how you love me, how you are with me, how you are growing me, teaching me, preparing me for some good work that may lie ahead that I can't even see right now. You see, when I read this passage of Scripture and I see that everybody gets the healing that they want, the thing that I think about was what about all the people who don't? And just... If I were the editor of the Bible, I might have suggested, let's throw in a story every once in a while where somebody doesn't get what they want. Because in my experience in life, the people who don't get what they want can still be drawn all the closer to God, strengthened in their faith, certain that God can be trusted uh, to work for good in all situations. 
My prayer is that we might be aware that that's the kind of God that seeks to reach out and touch us.